Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric neurologist discusses how a ketogenic diet can benefit children with epilepsy. If you have two or more unprovoked seizures in your life, then you meet the diagnostic criteria for epilepsy. A microbiologist shares his research into HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Infects or disrupts, destroys, kills the cells in our immune system that are necessary to mount an effective immune response against any other bacteria or virus. And we'll hear how the pandemic has impacted cancer screening rates. Prevention in the form of screening and therefore early detection prevents deaths from these cancers, more so um, than the preventive evidence that's out there for other cancers. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a microbiologist explains what he's discovered about how HIV replicates. Then, the executive coordinator of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine tells about cancer screening rates during the pandemic. But first, a pediatric neurologist goes over the ketogenic diet and how it can help kids with epilepsy. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Modern medicine does not have many examples of a dietary change that can be more effective than a pharmacological treatment. But today, we'll explore one with Dr. Nicole Brescia. She's an assistant professor of neurology and of pediatrics at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brescia. Thank you so much for having me today. Now, you're a pediatric neurologist and you specialize in the treatment of epilepsy. So before we talk about dietary changes, um, I'd like to ask you to explain what this disease is. How, how common is epilepsy in children? Absolutely. So if you look at the whole general population, epilepsy is about is about 1% of the population. Okay. It occurs about 1% of people. Do we know why or what causes it? So there's no one cause for epilepsy. You can have epilepsy because you have a genetic condition, you know, something that you're born with where seizures, seizures are just very common. You can have epilepsy because you had a traumatic brain injury or an infection in your brain. So, so there's a mixture. There's some kids that are born with it and some that acquire it later. The ones who are born with it, do they outgrow it? Or is it something that's with you for life if you're born with it? So if you take all children who present with seizures, about 70% of them will outgrow their seizures. So that is good news, but that also means there's about 30% of kids out there who will not um, outgrow their seizures. So how is it usually discovered? How does a parent find out that they have a child with epilepsy? So the most common presentation is they'll present with a first time convulsion. So convulsion is the kind of seizure that you usually see on TV where people lose their consciousness and their eyes roll up in their head and they shake all over. And usually they come to the emergency room because they never had that before. And to be diagnosed with epilepsy, you have to go through a little bit of an evaluation. There's a little bit of a diagnostic process. So not all seizures are the same. Some seizures are provoked. So that means that you know, anybody could have a seizure, really. If you have a low blood sugar or if you um, pass out suddenly and your brain doesn't get enough blood flow, your brain doesn't like that, and you can have a seizure for that reason. And if something provoked your seizure to happen, you know, sometimes people do drugs and they have seizures for that reason. If something provoked your seizure to happen, if you don't do the thing that provoked the seizure, again, you probably won't have another one. But sometimes we do a whole lot of investigation and we can't find anything that provoked the seizure. And then we call that an unprovoked seizure. And if you have two or more unprovoked seizures in your life, then you meet the diagnostic criteria for epilepsy. So when someone is having convulsions or seizures, what, what is happening in the body? What is, what is going on that's making the body react that way? Yeah, so what, I guess to answer that question, we've got to talk a little bit about what a seizure is. 
So a seizure is an abnormal electrical activity in the brain. And usually what it is is the normal activity in your brain is not working right. So you'll have an abnormal electrical discharge and that will build up and it will get faster and it will spread to enough areas of the brain. And once it spreads to other areas of the brain that involve consciousness and movement, then usually the person will lose their awareness and they can lose their consciousness and then they can you know, shake all over. It all depends really on where the seizure starts and where it goes to. So it sounds like seizures can be dangerous. Can they cause lasting damage? So it depends how long they are. Um, so I usually describe it to people kind of like the stove on their pilot, their stove like that's powered by gas. You know, when you turn your stove on, it goes click, click, click. And so the little sparks are kind of like your abnormal discharges. And a little spark itself doesn't really cause any problems. You know, and even if enough sparks get together and create a fire, you know, usually if you catch a fire soon enough, you know, it'll, you can put it out and there's no problem. Um, but if the fire is allowed to go on for a long period of time, and then that's where the problem can really start. So most seizures are not dangerous. That is the good news. Most seizures are short and they stop by themselves and they last less than three minutes. Um, the person doesn't have any lasting damage. The problem with seizures is that if you have a seizure in the wrong time or place, if you lose your awareness, you know, when you're in the street, you know, you could get hit by a car. If you have a seizure and you're on top of a ladder, even if it's short, you could fall and get a really serious injury. Or if you're in a bathtub, you could drown. Um, sometimes people have long seizures, like over, you know, five minutes. And if the seizures are allowed to go on for 10, 20, 30 minutes, that's when the neurons, the brain cells can really start to have um, long-term damage from a seizure that's too long. And you know, the last reason seizures are dangerous is if you have uncontrolled seizures and uncontrolled convulsions, you're more at risk for a thing called sudden unexplained death and epilepsy, which is um, when, you know, a person with epilepsy can, you know, pass away for seemingly no reason, um, you know, at all. So that's why we take the evaluation and treatment of seizures very seriously, because they can be dangerous. Well, I want to ask you about treatment. I imagine, what do you do for someone during the seizure or someone who comes to the emergency department, you know, in a seizure, is there a treatment to make it stop immediately? So, you know, in terms of responding to seizure, it's very important. A lot of the work is done by people in, in the field and even by people who are not medical professionals. So I always tell people, you know, in the office, it's always important to know what to do if you see someone having a seizure. So I always say it's very important to remind yourself that most seizures are short and they will stop by themselves. And it's not something you have to stop the person from doing. So you have to keep that in your mind and keep yourself as calm as you can. And then you go and assist the person. So, you know, if they're, you know, shaking, they can't talk to you, and you want to put them on their side and make sure their head's turned. This allows any drool or vomit to come out. You don't want the drool or vomit to get swallowed or sucked into the person's airway. Um, so that, you know, can cause an infection and other problems later. You want to... Uh, make sure that they're, you know, not hitting any sharp edges or furniture. Make sure there's no tight clothing around their neck. You don't have to put anything in their mouth. Nothing should go in between their teeth because you could chip their teeth or you could get your finger bit. And, you know, we don't want that. Um, and they're not going to swallow their tongue. And you don't need to hold them down or prevent their muscles from jerking because you could hurt their muscles or bones or make it hard for them to take good deep breaths. And then... Ideally, well, one person's, you know, putting them on their side and, you know, and watching, you know, what, and watching them, you want another person to call, you know, 911 if they've never had a seizure before. That's the reason for them to go um, to the emergency room. And the other important thing that any people could do if they see someone having seizures is to time it because the length of the seizure determines what rescue medicine, if any, they need. If a person's having a seizure for five minutes or longer, or let's say they had a seizure and they came out of it, but then they went back into having another one and never quite got back to themselves in between, that would be a reason for them to get rescue medicine. And the emergency uh, medical professionals, the EMTs, they have rescue medicine with them in the ambulance usually that they give the person to stop the seizure right away. And in the ED, we have other medications that we use um, to make the seizure shorter and to stop it. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Nicole Brescia. She's a pediatric neurologist at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, and we're talking about pediatric epilepsy. 
So for someone who's diagnosed with epilepsy, are there cures or treatments for that person? So there's no cure for epilepsy as of yet because epilepsy is caused by lots of different things. And my job as the epileptologist is to try to do is to try to understand why somebody has seizures. There's currently a lot of research going on in certain genetic epilepsies to try and, you know, fix the genetic defect that's um, causing the genetic problem and hence the seizures. But currently there's no medicine that makes your brain less epileptogenic or less likely to make seizures. At this point, our medicines are anti-seizure medicines, really. They really prevent the buildup of abnormal electrical activity in the brain. They prevent, uh, they prevent the seizures from happening. Um, but we don't have a thing that stops that process from happening in the first place. Well, I understand you got a grant for uh, to look into a dietary program for families in the central New York region who have a child with epilepsy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, I'm very excited about it. When I first uh, came here to Upstate back in August of you know, 2019, one of the things I really wanted to do was to um, help my, our epilepsy program grow and offer um, a whole variety of treatments for people's epilepsy. So one of the things I was very interested in doing was starting something called the ketogenic diet program. So that, you know, so the ketogenic diet is a therapy for people with what's called intractable epilepsy. That is when you have epilepsy and you've been tried on two or more appropriately chosen medicines at appropriate doses and you're still having seizures. And about a third of people with epilepsy are intractable. So they need help controlling or trying to prevent the seizures from happening. Exactly. And the likelihood, once you've been on two appropriately chosen medicines at appropriate doses and you're still having seizures, the likelihood that adding a third medicine or a fourth medicine or even a fifth medicine is unlikely to give you good seizure control. So that's when we start to think about other non-medication therapies for your epilepsy, and they include um, the key, that includes the ketogenic diet. So let me ask you more about the ketogenic diet because I've heard of you know you see it in advertised um, at restaurants and and uh, grocery stores people eating keto or following the keto diet. Is that the same thing? Because you're talking about Not exactly a, a, okay. Yeah, they have some similarities. So the ketogenic diet in the way that we use it here at Upstate is a medically supervised strict diet. With, and the goal is to make you consume the majority of your calories from fat and a little bit of your calories from um, protein and carbohydrates. And the keto diet that you see out in popular media that has some similarities that places a lot of emphasis on eating fat, the Atkins diet had a similar plan there. But the difference is oh, most people who are following the keto diet, you know, for, you know, weight loss or to get better like sugar control if they have diabetes, for example, they usually aren't being supervised by a dietitian. They may or may not be measuring and weighing all their food. The ketogenic diet for the treatment of epilepsy, we treat it kind of like a medication. So, you know, the first thing that we usually have to do is see if you're a candidate for it. So we have to decide, like, is this person intractable with their epilepsy? There are certain genetic conditions where a person doesn't break down fat appropriately, so they wouldn't be good candidates for this diet. Um, you know, but if you don't have any any of those genetic conditions, then and you have medically intractable epilepsy, then you could potentially be a candidate for this diet. And what patients do when they meet with me is we talk about that and we get, you know, some special labs to see if, to make sure they don't have any of those conditions that would preclude them from being a participant. And then if all that checks out, then they go and they meet with our dietitian, and the dietitian um, talks to them about how their, you know, diet will be changed. And it's kind of like a medicine, you know, when we start a new medicine, we never start people full force. On a medicine, we always start a, a lower amount and we go up bit by bit and we use only at the amount we need to control the seizures. The diet is similar. The diet usually starts out, you know, with one meal a day that's made in this ketogenic fashion and then they slowly go up to two meals a day and then three meals a day until they reach, you know, their, their goal. 
So uh, how does it work? How, if, if the uh, emphasis is on fat, what does the fat do that affects the seizure activity? Yeah, it's very interesting. This has been in the works for a long time. So if you look back to ancient Greek times, like Hippocrates, you know, he would prescribe fasting for people with epilepsy. And, you know, later on in biblical times, you know, the like ancient, you know, um, Christian physicians did similar things where they would say, if you have seizures, you have to fast and pray. And they kind of noticed that when people did that, their seizures got better. So, but they didn't really understand why it worked. They just knew that it, it did. And then in the 1930s, um, the this diet came back into, um, came back, you know, as a treatment potentially for epilepsy because in the 30s we didn't really have medicine yet um, for you know for seizures at that time. So the ketogenic diet in the 30s was the, one of the main um, stays of treatment. And what it does is when you are when you either don't eat or you are made to eat mostly fat, your body is made to live off of these molecules called ketones. Normally we we make energy from glucose or sugar. Um, but if you're starving, if you don't eat, you break down fat and you live off of ketones. And or if you eat just fat, you'll mostly burn the fat and you'll make ketones. And when the brain is made to eat ketones, a lot of things happen. The brain becomes less epileptogenic. There's less infl inflammation in the brain. There may be a role. Um, and having very steady lower blood sugars that also is as an anti-seizure effect. We know that, that it affects a lot of different things in the body and the brain, but there, we haven't quite nailed down what exactly about the ketogenic diet is anti-epileptogenic. Interesting. You know, or what prevents the seizure. And yeah, it is interesting. There's a lot of research going on to try to nail that down, looking at different small molecules that would ideally mimic the effect of of eating eating fat and using ketones without necessarily having to change your whole diet, but that that research um, hasn't reached the clinical side yet. Thank you to pediatric neurologist Dr. Nicole Brescia from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a scientist explains how the AIDS virus replicates. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates 1.2 million people in the United States are living with HIV and that one in five of those people are unaware that they have the virus that causes AIDS. Today, I'm joined by a scientist who is contributing to our understanding of HIV. Dr. Harry E. Taylor is an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Taylor. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Some of your research has increased the understanding of how HIV replicates. Before I ask you about that, can you give us some history about when HIV was discovered and how scientists connected it to AIDS? Absolutely. Uh, and so we sort of uh, have to go back in time into uh, the early 80s and what physicians noticed that there was a, a collection of young men um, and that have sex with men primarily uh, in California, San Francisco area, that all had very similar um, disease symptoms. Uh, and so what was really intriguing about it and also unfortunate is that these individuals had the occurrence of a, a very rare uh, pneumonia that's caused by a fungus. And typically these individuals are uh, impacted uh, or infected with this fungus if they have severe immunodeficiencies. And so that was really a, a first clue as to the origin, or at least uh, how this disease was involved in impacting the immune system. Um, and so with those efforts and NIH scientists and our friends uh, in France collectively were able to 
isolate a virus from the blood of individuals that have these more symptoms. Uh, and so we have this really interesting um, uh, collection of efforts uh, that converged uh, with the identification of the virus that was associated uh, with this immunodeficiency. So it's a virus that affects the person's immune system, right? It makes the immune system stop working? It actually, unfortunately, in a very clever way, it disarms the immune system. Uh, it infects or disrupts, destroys, kills the cells in our immune system that are necessary to mount an effective immune response against any other bacteria or virus. I've heard that HIV is actually a retrovirus. What is that and how does that differ from a regular virus? So it's intriguing. So I'm going to take you back to early uh, biology <laughs> when we learned that uh, so viruses have genes just like humans have genes. Uh, and the genes are the uh, instructions that would allow our cells in our bodies to make certain proteins. And the proteins are what actually do the work of the genes. And so the things that make our hair blonde, the proteins that make our, our eyes blue, uh, the very nature of what makes us unique uh, is encoded in our DNA. Uh, and so typically those instructions are read and interpreted by the cells to make a specific protein. But in order to make that protein, the DNA has to be made into RNA first. And so the, the, it's in, in human cells, it's only the information is translated from DNA to RNA to protein. So HIV and other retroviruses uh, have the unique capacity to do this in reverse. So they actually can make, start with RNA and make DNA from the RNA. Uh, and is that a uh, feature that anoints them with the title uh, retrovirus because they do this whole genetic processing in reverse. Why is understanding replication of HIV important? It's, it's critical for us to understand how any pathogen replicates because the thought is, is that the more we know about how something functions, it can, it can be anything from, say, viruses to, say, a car engine. Uh, the better we know how to, say, fix or disrupt the normal functionings. And so we want to completely understand how this virus works so that we know exactly how to target it. We know exactly what its Achilles heel is so we can design drugs that specifically attack at weakness. Uh, and so this is why basic research is highly uh, important uh, to understand things like viruses, uh, including things like the, the virus that causes COVID, which we'll talk about a bit later. So, Well, how do you think your research on replication might lead to new medications? Is that your goal? Absolutely. Uh, and so the work that we have been able to accomplish um, was... I think it was. I think it was pretty important. Uh, it added a little, uh, uh, a little tidbit to the knowledge as far as how HIV needs certain resources that are provided by the cells it infects. I mentioned to you earlier that HIV targets our immune system, uh, and so HIV, like every virus, depends on the cells that it infects to provide building blocks building blocks that it would make progeny viruses. And when it infects the T cells, when it enters that T cells, particularly an activated T cell, that T cell has cupboards full of building blocks for the virus that allows it to make additional copies of itself, which then allows it to go on and infect other T cells. And so essentially usurps uh, these building blocks in the T cell that normally allow the T cell to make more copies of itself. And so it's an arms race here. So the T cell that the virus infects uses its uh, stored resources to expand its army. And the virus, which has a leg up because it replicates faster, 
infect those cells, uh, essentially pillage <laughs> the resources of that cell to make more copies of the cell to go on and to kill more T cells before they mount an objective immune response that is designed to rid the body of it. So it sounds like anything that could interrupt that process would potentially be helpful if you can figure out a way to interrupt it. Absolutely. And we've identified uh, several targets in the lab that in theory would do just that. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Harry E. Taylor. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. We've been talking about HIV, but now I'd like to ask you about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. If I understand correctly, this virus has a spike protein that allows it to get into human cells. Can you describe how the existing vaccines are designed to work against this spike protein? Sure. SARS-CoV-2 is a, is a member of a class of viruses called coronaviruses. And these coronaviruses, if you look at them under a very powerful microscope, electron microscope, you'll notice that they have what looks like a crown on them. And when you, in this crown essentially is made of these proteins that emanate from the surface of this virus. And these proteins that emanate from the surface of the virus that make this crown are the spike proteins. And so they like little, look like little spikes on the surface of this virus. And those spike proteins are what allows that virus to interact with cells in the respiratory tract and other uh, regions or other places in the body to target cells for infection. And so the vaccine that has been designed to stimulate an effective immune response against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. It's It allows, it's an RNA virus. So we talked earlier about RNA and DNA. And so this RNA virus, which is made by two major companies, Moderna and Pfizer, um, and it turns out that this RNA vaccine provides cells with the instructions to make SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And so what's intriguing about this is that the body is exposed to this spike protein in the absence of a deadly virus. And so even in the absence of the full virus, the immune system becomes able to train itself to make uh, an immune response against that spike protein so that when it encounters the real deal, it's already been prepped and primed, and it has an army of T cells and other cells that make antibodies that recognizes the spike protein and blocks and neutralizes the virus on site. And we've heard reports that this is very effective. Extremely effective, actually impressive. I can remember early on in the pandemic, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of uh, NIH uh, Infectious Diseases uh, Institute, he at that time said he would be happy with the vaccine that was 80% effective. But it turns out that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are both about 95% effective. So this is like hitting a home run, the park. Uh, so we are lucky to uh, have scientists that were hot on the case and had a really effective strategy about making a vaccine that can be uh, fully expedited. But now we're hearing about new mutations of coronavirus. How, how worried should we be about that? We should be concerned. And from the standpoint that I think it provides uh, healthcare professionals, scientists, governmental agencies to do more surveillance because it turns out that in the prior administration, uh, it really wasn't a high priority. It wasn't a high priority for us to determine uh, how this virus is changing uh, within our borders. And so we're really blindsided by all of this. But now it seems that with the new administration and new uh, SARS-CoV-2 COVID task force, uh, they are now 
putting forth an effort to have a higher level of surveillance that will allow us to monitor the evolution of uh, and potential dangers of new uh, mutant viruses. And, and it turns out that uh, there was a strain that was, or variant that was initially identified in uh, the UK. Uh, and there was another subsequent strain that was identified in South Africa. Uh, it turns out that the vaccines that I mentioned produced by Moderna and Pfizer are effective against the UK strain, but it seems that the uh, efficacy it has, is diminished when we look at uh, the South African strain. Now, these are early studies now, uh, so in primarily in vitro studies. And so in these studies, they were able to uh, take plasma or serum from individuals that were successfully vaccinated with their vaccine, and they used that sera, and what they determined was that sera was capable of neutralizing the UK strain pretty effectively, but the ability of the sera from protected individuals to neutralize this South African strain was reduced by 60%. And this is under um, fully optimized uh, conditions in the laboratory. And so the jury is still out uh, to determine exactly how well they're gonna protect people from natural exposure um, in their own environments. Well, let me ask you, the influenza vaccine every year is a little bit different. It's changed based on what's circulating, right? So do you envision that this could be similar with a COVID vaccine that would have to be tweaked each year? Well, uh, many experts feel that that may be a possibility, but the we can sort of take solace in knowing that this coronavirus, if we get a handle on it early on, every virus needs a host or a human or an animal to replicate. And the more opportunities that these viruses have to replicate or to infect people, it gives them a additional time to evolve and to make mutations. And so the coronaviruses as a family, they really don't mutate very much. And unlike the influenza virus or HIV, these viruses mutate in such a way, HIV being on the, um, on the extreme end, uh, it's very difficult to design a vaccine against HIV because it's in, in any individual, there are thousands or millions of different variants in one person. And here we are with SARS-CoV-2 and we have a couple of variants pop up, but that's expected. It, it, this was something that we knew was going to happen because millions of people across the globe are infected with this virus. And so as a virus infects people, it evolves. And so at this point, I think that uh, now we're aware of these additional variants. And right now, Moderna and Pfizer and another company that I didn't mention earlier, Novavax, which has a, has a different type of vaccine, are already making variations of their vaccines that will be more effective against these strains. And so I, I don't think that we have a huge reason to worry because the science uh, is on par and moving forward so that we'll have the tools to design better or more effective, more specific vaccines that we move forward. Thank you to Dr. Harry E. Taylor. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How has the pandemic affected cancer screening? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The pandemic has affected how people undergo screening for certain cancers whose successful treatment depends on early diagnoses. 
Here to discuss this trend is Laura Shad. She's the executive coordinator of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate, and she was the project manager for a study of screening rates for breast, cervical, and colorectal cancers. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, if I understand correctly, for six years before 2020, so starting in 2014, three New York State practice-based research networks were working on strategies to improve screening rates for breast, cervical, and colorectal cancers. And then the pandemic happened. So why is the focus on improving screening rates for these cancers? Yeah, absolutely. So. Thank you for that question. And as you mentioned, um, this has been a project that we've been working on for several years. So just for a little context here, um, in the United States, our screening rates for breast, cervical, and colorectal cancer are often below our national targets, even though there's plenty of evidence to support the effectiveness of these preventive screenings. And this problem is often worse in disadvantaged populations within our society. So, this is true in New York State and the New York State Department of Health was um, decided to target primary care practices who serve these disadvantaged populations, which we call safety net practices, to engage them in improving their screening rates within their patient populations. So, in response to this call, three of our practice-based research networks, or PBRNs, um, across Western and Central New York, partnered to provide some quality improvement strategies for colorectal, breast, and cervical cancers to increase screenings. So our PBRN here in Syracuse at Upstate partnered with PBRN in Rochester and one in Buffalo, and we had facilitators in each region go into the primary care practices and work with a practice champion to help implement strategies that could improve these screening rates. And we focus specifically on breast, cervical, and colorectal cancers because they are common in the United States and they're contributors to leading causes of death. But more so, they also have the best evidence that prevention in the form of screening and therefore early detection prevents deaths from these cancers, more so um, than the preventive evidence that's out there for other cancers. So let's talk a little about how these screenings are done. Now, breast cancer is mammograms, right? Yes. What about cervical and colorectal? How are those screenings done? Sure. So the United States Preventive Services Task Force, or the USPSTF, and the American Cancer Society, the ACS, they both have some guidelines for these screenings. And they're very similar, but they differ in a few key areas, mainly in the ages that screenings should start. So I'll focus on the USPSTF guidelines. And as you mentioned, for breast cancer, that is a recommendation of a mammogram every other year, beginning at age 50 and going through age 74. For cervical cancer screening, the USPSTF recommends a pap smear every three years, beginning at age 21 and going until age 65. Now, cervical cancer screening is slightly more complex than a few of our other cancer screenings, and there is a whole variety of testing options that I won't get into um, today, but the pap smear is what's recommended. For colorectal cancer, the USPSTF recommends screening beginning at 50 and continuing through 75. Historically, they had recommended a colonoscopy every 10 years, but there are other ways to test for colorectal cancer and due to advances in some of these tests like our fit kit and other modalities, they don't, they no longer place the emphasis on a type of screening, but rather just getting the screening done. Now, are most of these screenings covered by insurance? Yes, um, in New York state, most insurance plans, including Medicaid, um, they must cover breast, cervical and colorectal cancer screenings at no cost to the patient. And the New York State Department of Health also offers free breast, cervical, and colorectal cancer screening to underinsured and uninsured eligible men and women through their cancer services program. So uh, cost is not a factor to getting people to have these tests done. Um, how effective are they? Do they do a good job of catching cancer? They do. They are very effective, and there's plenty of evidence to support that in the literature. And like I mentioned, these three cancers have been our focus because there is the most evidence out there that they prevent the most death um, when you can catch these um, cancers early via screening. Now, what success did these 12 safety net primary care practices have in improving screening from 2014 to 2019 before the pandemic? Were they making yes. inroads in getting the numbers increased? 
They were. So as I mentioned, our practices in this project primarily serve disadvantaged populations, so those safety net practices. Um, and what we saw was that success in improving screening rates varied greatly among our practices, which wasn't a huge surprise to us. Um, overall, though, we did see that practices had the best success in improving their colorectal cancer screening rates. Um, they also succeeded in improving breast cancer rates. What we saw with cervical cancer was a lot of variability between our practices, and that's due in part to the complexity of some of the guidelines for cervical cancer screening, but also the fact that a lot of individuals seek this screening at an outside OBGYN facility, and our project focused on primary care. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Laura Shad. She's the Executive Coordinator of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate, and she was the Project Manager for a study into the screening rates during the pandemic for breast, cervical, and colorectal cancers. So let's talk about what happened after the pandemic began. Did you see a significant change in the number of patients who were following screening guidelines? So surprisingly, no. And um, the majority of our practices, they were able to maintain steady rates of patient adherence to screening guidelines, even when a lot of our practices closed, especially during the early months of the pandemic and patients couldn't necessarily come into the office for these screenings. So as the pandemic continued and practices began to adjust to this new normal, they started to get really creative in ways to reach their patients. And then um, they also were able to start seeing patients again in office for some of these screenings as the months continued. So we really didn't see a huge change among our practices. Now, I've heard that nationally more than a third of adults have not received the recommended screenings for their associated age and risks during the pandemic, and that more than 40% of patients have missed or postponed preventive appointments because of the pandemic. Do you have any sense for how much of this is because people are afraid of being exposed to the virus by going to a medical office? Yeah, so with our project, um, I do believe that people were afraid of contracting the virus from a visit to a medical office, but we didn't talk to patients in this project. We specifically focused at the practice level. So on the practice level, I can certainly attest that offices had concerns about the virus being in their practices and spreading in their practices. And state guidelines reflect the concerns of these practices. So I'm sure that there were patient concerns, um, but while I can't speak directly to that, I know for a fact that practices were concerned about the virus. Is there any way to calculate how many cancers are being missed when people are not getting screened? So this isn't exactly what we studied, and it's a pretty complicated um, calculation, but it is possible. And one of the methods you could use to determine this would be a comparison period where you would look at a number of individuals who were tested, say, a few years back over the same period of months, and you would compare that to the number of individuals who were tested during the pandemic. And we know how many cancers are detected via screenings. So what we could do would be extrapolate on that and we could determine the number of excess deaths from missed screenings during the pandemic. So there's a few um, studies that have started to do this. And one of them estimates that there were about 4,000 excess deaths nationally from colorectal cancer during this time. And this really underscores how important it was for practices to try and maintain their screening rates. I understand a couple of the practices that are part of the study you were involved in had no change in the frequency of screenings, then some of them reported major decreases. What affected whether a practice was able to continue screening at the same rate or not? Sure. So practices who um, historically have populations at higher risk for COVID-19, um, these populations would include um, the homeless, refugees, and elderly, those practices really encouraged their healthy patients to stay home. And we also had a handful of practices who focus on serving transient populations, and they had a whole host of challenges with their populations. Um, I can't go into too much detail about those specifically because of um, the identity of the practices needs to be protected. But as we know, some offices also closed entirely for periods of time during this, and many um, saw reduced staffing, either from staff being sick and out of work or staff being reassigned to hospitals to help with the overwhelming need there. 
a few of our practices did use this time where they were seeing less, less patients to improve their preventive screenings by cleaning up some patient data and some of their patient records. So they would know, um, they'd have a better idea as to who was eligible for screenings and who was due. And a couple of practices also filmed some screening tutorial videos that they can use even after the pandemic. And then telemedicine also was a big um, win for some of our practices during this time. However, telemedicine also presented problems for practices who have patient populations who might not necessarily have access or the means to use the technology for telemedicine. So what we saw with telemedicine was if practices had used it before the pandemic, they had more success with it during it. Let's talk about colorectal cancer screening specifically. Are home test kits an adequate substitute for colonoscopies? And were those used more during the pandemic because they're done at home? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a at-home test kit, fit kit, is a great option for testing at home. Um, if a primary care physician or other provider managing screening chooses a fit test as a screening option, it certainly follows the recommendations and guidelines. A lot of our practices did choose this method for colorectal cancer screening because they didn't involve the patient coming into the office. They were able to mail it out to the patient's home, which helps increase their um, number of screenings for colorectal cancer. Um, that said, I do think that um, it's important to note that patients should talk to their primary care provider about their individual risk for colorectal cancer to determine which screening is best for them. Are practices still recommending patients with um, certain symptoms or, or certain risk factors? Are they still able to do colonoscopies during the pandemic for people who absolutely need them? So certainly during the height of the pandemic, services were a lot more limited, especially when offices were closed. Um, and to be honest, this does mean that patients didn't get screened. However, what we saw was that a lot of these practices avoided the drastic drops in the number of patients who were screened by mailing out fit kits, and they've seemed to catch up now to the rates that they um, had before the pandemic. Now, what about breast cancer screening? Were the mammogram centers um, open during the pandemic? A lot of our practices actually utilize um, what are mobile mammography vans or buses in the communities that they serve, and these um, units often um, provide an uh, alternative to going into an office so they have um, they address access issues as well as increasing the number of patients who can be screened by an office and during the pandemic what happened with these mobile units is that a lot of them had to be reassigned from mammography to COVID-19 testing units so several of our practices lost the ability to use these mobile mammography vans during the height of the pandemic and as testing um, became more prevalent and we got adjusted a little more. Many of our practices did regain access to these mobile units and they have um, stated that they were able to catch up once they regained access to these units and that they are almost all, if not completely caught up um, to those who missed their screenings early on in the pandemic. Now, cervical cancer screening, I think means an in-person doctor visit, right? Or is there an alternative to the pap smear? Yeah, so cervical cancer screening um, with a pap smear does need to be done in office, and the alternative would be an HPV test, but that also does need to be done in office. All right. Well, what are some public health lessons that you think can be learned from this pandemic experience? I think what's important here is to note that despite these drastic changes that a lot of our practices faced with their operations when COVID-19 hit and restrictions started to take effect, our primary care practices were able to shift their focus um, from their traditional in-office screenings and really support screenings outside of the typical in-office visit. And so with a little bit of creativity and the use of some evidence-based tools and interventions, we didn't see a drastic drop in screening like we thought we might um, due to the pandemic. And practices had a lot of innovative ways to combat the restrictions that they were facing. So, as I mentioned, we had practices who updated their data systems and patient records, um, practices who implemented telemedicine, and practices who just found new ways to adapt to screenings. And I think if practices were able to maintain their screening rates during this pandemic, um, we can only imagine what they can do now going forward with this newfound knowledge when um, there's finally no longer a pandemic. Wow. Well, thank you so much to Laura Shad from Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Gigi Marks is an educator, independent scholar, editor, and conservationist. Her poem, Overlooked, explores why we might not want to take the road less traveled. Overlooked. There is a path I wouldn't take, the briars spreading with no hand's breadth opening across it, hooked into each other, the dark weave forming from their thorny stems, the scattered rocks there making dips and rises on the soil's tipped-up face, the kind that could catch and cast you earthward or make you stumble. I was looking for the shortest journey home, not one that held the ring of small shining cherry trees encircled, or the great oak as old and as wide it might seem as the sky. When I found the clear path, I took it, tired and sick, and only wanting to be back home with you. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about the COVID-19 vaccines. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.